You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Well, the last uh, few weeks, we have been traveling through the uh, opening chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, looking at these letters that Jesus sent to the seven churches uh, of that region. And today we come to the sixth letter in the book of Revelation, and this is to the letter, uh, this letter is to the church of Philadelphia. Now, this one is unique to me or closer to my heart because uh, my hometown is named after this city named in the book of Revelation. For those of you who don't know, I was born and raised in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, <clears throat> the birthplace of our nation. And the founder of the city of Philadelphia, William Penn, who's also the founder of the colony of Pennsylvania, had this vision that the Christians living in that city that he was starting in the colony of Pennsylvania, that they would emulate the Christians mentioned in the book of Revelation. And for good reason. Because the church in Philadelphia and the Christians there are greatly praised by Jesus himself. In fact, of the seven churches that we read about, only two of them are encouraged and praised by Jesus with no rebuke whatsoever. That's Philadelphia and Smyrna. We don't know a lot about the church in Philadelphia. We don't know a lot about the city of Philadelphia and what it was like in the first century. But we can assume a few things from this letter. We can assume that they were likely not a large church. They were likely not a church that was well known. They were likely not a church that had a lot of resources or a lot of influence. They were likely a group of Christians that were oppressed or alienated in one way or another, specifically by the Jewish people in the community there in the city of Philadelphia. You remember, in the early decades of Christianity, all of the churches were predominantly Jewish, or they were a mix of Jews and Gentiles, and so it was not abnormal, it was quite quite normal for the Christians that were Jewish to still be a part of the Jewish synagogue in whatever city or region they they lived in. But from reading this letter, it appears, we're not 100% sure, but it appears that maybe the Christians in Philadelphia had been rejected by those in the synagogue and that they were not allowed to be a part of the community at the synagogue there. We also learn from this letter that this church in Philadelphia remained faithful to Christ even in the face of great opposition. And I want that for us. I want us to be that type of church, and I want us to be those type of Christians. Would you pray with me one more time? Father in heaven, we thank you that these words were written down, and that nearly 2,000 years later, we can read them, learn from them, be inspired by them, be sanctified by your spirit through these words. Thank you that that's a reality for us. Thank you that we get to meet here freely this morning. Thank you for the body of Christ. Thank you for the church. Thank you for Cities Church. Thank you for establishing a community of people that love the gospel. Thank you. God, I pray you would use uh, my words this morning as a means of sanctification in the lives of your people this morning. And I pray that you would use the preaching of your word to draw people unto yourself. God, if there's anyone right now in this room or watching online or in our overflow room, anyone under the sound of my voice that does not know you, that is not genuinely born again, 
whether they are new to our church or someone who's been here, for, been here for a while that maybe thinks they're born again but actually are not, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit, you would reveal yourself to that person. You would give them the gift of repentance and draw them unto yourself. I pray that today, if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, I pray that today they would trust in you. And I pray we would all leave this room knowing that we are the ones that you love. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. So the letter starts, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. It starts by saying, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here, Jesus is describing himself as the Holy One, the true one. And then more specifically, Jesus says that he is the one that possesses the key of David. Now, if this is a reference to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 22. And in Isaiah 22, there is a man by the name of Shebna. I think I'm pronouncing that right. A man named Shebna who's mentioned there. And Shebna, uh, he works for King Hezekiah. And Shebna is an unfaithful steward. He's not good at his job. And so the prophet Isaiah gives a prophecy that Shebna, because of his lack of faithfulness, would be ousted. He would be replaced. And that he would be replaced with a man by the name of Eliakim. When we examine Eliakim in Isaiah 22, we realize that he actually foreshadows Christ. Eliakim is the one that had the key to the palace. Right? This is where the king lived. And the man with the key is the one who determined who comes in and who comes out. He's the one that has the authority to determine who he will open the gate to and invite into the palace. Well, in the same way, just as Eliakim controlled who came into the king's palace, in the same way, the Messiah controls who comes into God's house. Jesus is equating himself in this moment with Eliakim, and he's making clear to the church of Philadelphia, I want you to know that I am the one who gets to make the call who comes in to the family of God. Jesus is making it clear that he is the one with the key of David, and he determines who comes in. He is clearly establishing himself as the one that matters most. He, his approval matters more than anyone else. The guy who gets to determine if you get in or not, his approval and his opinion of you matters more than anyone else's opinion of you. It is clear to us that the Church of Philadelphia probably did not have, uh, were not well liked or esteemed by people in their community. But you begin to realize that that actually is of little significance if you have the approval of Jesus. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus says to them, I know your works. Behold, I set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says, I know your works. I've seen you. I've seen how you behave. I've seen how you live. I've seen how you love. I've seen how you pray. Let me tell you something. To you, I am opening a door, and no one's going to shut that door. I opened that door to you, Philadelphia. Jesus is the one with the key. His opinion matters most. And he is the one that opens the door to them. And no one has the power to shut it. This is what Jesus is telling them. And he is inviting them to come in to the family of God. What 
a remarkable promise. What a remarkable invitation. In, in essence, Jesus is looking at this church saying, yes, you've been ostracized by your community. You've been kicked out of the synagogue. You've been oppressed. You've been disenfranchised. They don't like you. They speak ill of you. Yes, they don't approve of you, but I approve of you. I've seen you, and I approve of you. And while they have shut their doors to you, I open my doors to you. And no one can shut it. What an incredible invitation from our Savior. Jesus is inviting them into God's house. And the same invitation is open to you. That if you would believe. He sees there that they kept his word and they did not deny his name. In the second half of that verse, he says, You have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Kept my word, not denied my name. Here, Jesus is praising them. He's praising the church in Philadelphia because of their faithfulness. And an interesting phrase there, he says that they have little power. And we don't know precisely what Jesus is referring to, but we can sort of infer that little power gives us this idea that this church was not big and strong. They did not have lots of resources or lots of influence in their community. They did not have the big, flashy reputation of the church of Sardis, which Pastor Ryan spoke about last week. That They were, they were not necessarily the church that you would go out of your way to show people if they came to visit you in town. But Jesus looks at this church, the Philadelphians, and he says to them, other people think you're small and insignificant. Other people think that you're not important. You know what I think of you? You're faithful, and you have not denied my name. And for that, I open the door to you, and no one's going to shut it. You may be weak in the world's eyes, but because of your faithfulness, I will be with you, and that will make you strong. Look at verse 9 with me. Jesus says, Behold, I make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come down, <clears throat> down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Here in this passage and elsewhere in the book of Revelation, this is actually, this language is used a, a, a few other times. But they, Jesus is implying that there are groups of people, groups of Jews specifically, Jewish people, that he refers to as a synagogue of Satan. These are groups of Jews, groups of Jewish people that are actually doing the work of the devil. They're propagating the kingdom of darkness rather than the kingdom of God. The primary thing they have done that is devilish, that is satanic, is the fact that they have rejected that Jesus is the Messiah. Claiming that Jesus is not the Messiah, that he's not God, is something that the devil would want them to do. And so if you reject Jesus as Messiah, you are doing the devil's work. And for that, they are labeled the synagogue of Satan. Because they deny Jesus, they are labeled this way. And Jesus refers to them as Jews who are not really Jews. They claim to be Jews, but they're not actually behaving the way a good Jewish person ought to behave. They are not doing that which a good Jewish person ought to do. Mainly, receive their Messiah. Jesus then makes this prophecy about this particular group of Jewish people. He says, these Jewish people are going, that are doing the work of the devil, they're going to come bow down at your feet. Speaking to the Christians in Philadelphia, they're going to bow down at your feet. 
I'm going to read that verse again in a different English translation just because I want you to make sure you, want to make sure you don't miss it. It says this, look, I force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, they will come down and bow down at your feet. Now, this actually is another prophecy that is being borrowed from the Old Testament. Again, from the book of Isaiah. Just as we saw with Eliakim earlier, this is another allusion to the book of Isaiah, this time from Isaiah 45. Listen to what Isaiah 45, verse 14 says. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other, no God besides him. So that's the prophecy to the Jewish people 700 years before the book of Revelation is written. 700 years earlier, there's this prophecy saying that these Gentile nations, the the Ethiopians, the Egyptians, other people, they're going to come to the Jews and they're going to bow down and worship. They're not worshiping the the Jewish people. That's not what they're doing. But they're coming to the Jewish people and acknowledging that Israel, your God, is the one true God. That That we've been wrong about God all this time. We've been wrong about the Jews all this time. These people from the other nations are going to come and they're going to worship the one true God. These Gentiles are going to look at the Jews and say, surely God is in you. So that's the prediction, the prophecy from Isaiah 45. This is a prophecy that would have been prominent, that would have been well known, it would have been taught and embraced by lots of Jewish people in the first century. The Jewish people living in Philadelphia, no doubt, are expecting this to come to pass, that the Gentile people are going to come to them and, and tell them that their God is the one true God. But Jesus here flips the script. Jesus looks at the church in Philadelphia and he says, this actually applies to you. This would have been this would have been shocking to the Christians in Philadelphia in the first century. For centuries, this prophecy from Isaiah was embraced by the Jewish people, saying that that the Gentile nations are going to come to us. But Jesus is saying, no, actually, those Jews, the Jewish people, they're actually going to come to you, Christians. And they're going to look at you and say, surely God is with you. Jesus is telling them, listen, the Jewish people, they've hated you. They kicked you out of the synagogue. They oppressed you. They think the nations are going to come to them, but actually they are going to come to you. For a Christian, particularly a Jewish Christian in the first century, this would have been mind-blowing. Wow! Jesus is saying that the Jews that hated you, the synagogue of Satan, they're going to know that you are the ones that I loved. Cities Church, this applies to you today too. You are the one that Jesus loves. And there are people in your life that oppose you, hate you, mock you, gossip about you, oppress you. Those people, many of them, are eventually going to come to a realization that the one true God loves you. That you are the one that he loves. You will be vindicated. Let me read that last part of the verse again. They will learn that I have loved you. You've been oppressed, you've been mocked, but I love you. I got your back. I approve of you. 
Cities Church, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. If you are here this morning and you believe in Jesus, if you are a genuine follower of Christ, I have a message for you. Jesus loves you with a fierce, passionate, unconditional love. He loves you. If you are here this morning and you have not completely trusted in Christ, if you are here this morning, you would say, I have not actually genuinely fully surrendered myself to Jesus. He is not genuinely the Lord of my life. I would say to you, you are not in that group, but you can be. I challenge you today to trust in Christ. Believe in Christ. We are sinners, all of us, every single one of us. None of us deserve his love. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We deserve hell. But Jesus made a way for us to be rescued. And that if we genuinely surrender to him, that if we believe in him, that he will rescue us. He will forgive our sins and he will say to you, there's a door open to you now. And ain't nobody gonna shut it. This door is open to you if you believe. So if you are here this morning and that is not you, I implore you, believe in Christ today. Romans 10, 13 says, the Apostle Paul says this, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call upon his name. Look at verse 10 with me. Jesus says, it's because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Because you've kept my word, because you have lived faithfully to me, I'm about to protect you from the hour of trial that's about to come on those who dwell on the earth, is what Jesus is saying. Now this term, dwell on the earth, is an interesting phrase. It's actually used multiple times in the book of Revelation, at least uh, at least. Uh, nine times between chapters 6 and 17 of the book. And in every single time, it exclusively refers to unbelievers, specific, more specifically, uh, those who practice idolatry and do not believe in God. And so it does not mean, when it says dwell on the earth, those who physically live on earth. That's not what it means. It means those who dwell on earth in such a way that they take comfort in this world, on this earth. It's those who are earthly-minded is what Jesus is referring to here. Those who find comfort in this world or find this world at, they find themselves at home in this world. In contrast, we as believers, followers of Christ, we are not to feel at home in this world. This, this is not our ultimate home. The Apostle Peter says this in 1, Timothy chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, he refers to Christians as aliens and exiles. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 3 that our citizenship is in heaven. In Ephesians 2.6, we read that we are raised with Christ and seated in heavenly places. We are not earth dwellers. Do, do, not, do not take comfort in this world. We are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And in this letter, Jesus is telling us there's, there's going to be a bunch of trials and tribulation that are going to come upon the earth dwellers, those who are earthly-minded, who, who, make, who, who take comfort in this world, those people, there's going to be a great trial coming upon them. But those of us who are believers, he's going to protect us from that hour of trial. 
Now, there is some significant debate amongst various Bible scholars as to precisely how to interpret this verse. But I'm not going to get into that today because ultimately, regardless of how you read this verse and how you interpret it, ultimately the promise from Jesus to Christians is the same. The promise is this. He will protect us. He will be with us no matter what we face. Certainly this does not mean we will never suffer in this life. Right? The, the New Testament is packed with plenty of passages that make it very clear we will definitely experience pain and suffering in this life. That's definitely the case. However, there's a type of protection here in Revelation that Jesus is promising to Christians in this verse. It's not that we won't suffer, but it's that no matter what we face, our suffering will never have the final say. This is the same language that Jesus uses in John chapter 17 when Jesus is praying for us. His prayer is not that we be taken out of the world. His prayer is not that we be spared from suffering, although sometimes I wish that had been his prayer. That was not his prayer. No, his prayer is that even in the midst of suffering, that the Father would protect us from the evil one. That no matter what we face in this life, the evil one doesn't have final say over us. That no matter what we face, we will be vindicated. Jesus says, hey, Philadelphians, no matter what you face, it doesn't have final say. I do. And remember, I opened the door, and no one can shut it. Jesus prays for us that no matter what we face in this life, that the evil one would not be able to rip us from the family of God. That's the promise here. The, the earth dwellers, the unbelievers, they will face tribulation and they will not have Jesus protecting them in that way. But Jesus will be with us and he will protect us in that way. What a promise. That no matter what you face in this life, it doesn't have final say over you, believer. Christian, you are the one he loves. He has final say. He has declared the final destination. Look at verse 11 with me. Jesus says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The exhortation from Jesus here is because you know you win in the end, because you know that that hour of trial will, will not come upon you and have final say, because you know that is true, because you know that I will hold fast to you, then you should hold fast to me. The knowledge that we know we win inspires us and strengthens us to hold on. Hold on, church. There's a crown waiting for you. Hold on, church. No matter what you face in this life, no matter if you've been ostracized or disenfranchised, opposed, hated, mocked, physical pains, disease, death of loved ones, miscarriage, betrayal, Hold on, there is a crown waiting for you. Look at the last verse with me this morning, verse 12. Jesus says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Jesus looks at the church of Philadelphia and says, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Th think about this idea of a pillar. Like, 
the pillar is this sturdy thing that holds things up. Right? This is a strong, uh, a strong structure. Think about what this would have meant to the Christians in Philadelphia who were feeling weak or oppressed. These Christians probably didn't feel strong. They, they probably didn't feel like pillars. They probably didn't have a lot of influence. They probably felt exhausted or rejected. They, they, that may have informed how they viewed themselves and how they viewed various situations. They probably felt weak or small or insignificant. But Jesus looked at them and says, I'm going to make you a pillar. Oh, you don't feel that way today? Just hold on. I'm going to make you a pillar. City's Church, he says the same to you today. If you feel weak or small or exhausted or insignificant, hold on. Conquer through his grace. He will make you a pillar in the temple of his God. And then he says the final promise in this passage that he promises to give us his own name. Jesus, I'm going to put my name on you. As I close this morning, I want to give you a, an illustration from one of my favorite movies, in my opinion, the second greatest movie of all time, Toy Story. Toy Story is a fantastic movie. If you've not seen it, I'm going to kind of ruin the ending. You've had enough time by this point. It's been 25 years. <laughs> one of the key characters of this movie, Toy Story, is a character by the name of Buzz Lightyear. And as most of you surely know, Buzz Lightyear, at the beginning of the movie, thinks he is a space ranger. He has a flawed understanding as to who he is or what he is called to do. But eventually he realizes that he's not a space ranger. And he is actually completely depressed by this reality. When he learns that he's not a space ranger, but a toy. He's depressed by this. He's completely dejected. And toward the end of the movie, Buzz and another toy by the name of Woody, they are kidnapped by the next-door neighbor, the evil next-door neighbor, Sid. You guys remember Sid? Woody is trying to convince Buzz, Buzz, we got to get out of here, man. we got to fight. we got to escape. And Buzz is like, what's the point? I'm a toy. I'm not a space ranger. What do I care if I live or not? And Woody goes into this impassioned speech, kind of a mini-sermon, mini-lecture. I'm going to paraphrase. Woody basically looks at Buzz and he says, you're not a space ranger, no. You're a toy. Let me tell you something, Buzz. Your owner, his name is Andy. He loves you. He takes joy in you. He takes pleasure in you. He loves you because you belong to him. Buzz Lightyear is contemplating Woody's words, and he looks at the bottom of his foot, and he sees the name Andy written on the bottom of his foot. Andy had written his name on all of his toys. Andy had given Buzz his name. A transformation takes place in Buzz's head at that moment. He realizes that although he's not what he thought he was, although things have not played out the way he had hoped, the, now in this moment, he's not a space ranger. He feels insignificant and small and not important. But he realizes that my owner loves me. He takes joy in me. And he wrote his name on me. And this is what Jesus has done with us. Jesus, he owns you, Christian. He takes joy in you. He is with you, and he wrote his name on you. 
Christian, he loves you. Believer, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. When you feel like you don't measure up, when you feel rejected and small and alone, remind yourself that you are the one he loves. He loves you, Christian. He loves you. He says it to the church of Philadelphia, and he says it to you this morning, City's Church, that he loves you so much. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. He loves you so much. He says, the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called sons and daughters of God. And that is what we are. Jesus loves you. And he demonstrated his love for you at the cross. The cross of Christ where he dies a brutal death in our place. It should have been me. It should have been you. But because he loves you so much, he takes your place. He did not deserve to die, but he does it on our behalf because he loves you. If you are a believer in Jesus this morning and you have trusted in Christ, the atonement of Christ at the cross is applied to you, and he loves you. He is with you. He opens the door to you that no one can shut. And he says, I put my name on you. Jesus made a way for us, and he did it at the cross. And that's why we come to this table every single week. Every single week we come to this table over and over again to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. In just a moment, our pastors are going to come, and they're going to pass out these elements. Um, this is the bread and the cup. This is primarily for the members of City's Church. However, it's open to all who believe in Jesus. If you are a follower of Christ, this is for you, to remember what Christ did because he loves you. If you have trusted in Christ, the door is open to you and you are invited to partake in this meal with us. If you are here this morning, you are not a follower of Christ. If you are not surrendered to him, we would ask you to just let these elements pass. And instead of taking communion, I implore you, take Christ instead. The pastors will come. Simply put your hands out like this. We'll drop it in your hands. This is the body and blood of Jesus. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.